0: Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. We'll begin in that place in just a moment. Exodus 19. Good to see you this morning. We have so many visitors with us. We have a number of our people who are out. But you are here in their place. We're thankful for you being here. Thank you so much for choosing to worship God with us and choosing to attend with us. We want you to know you're welcome here. We'd love to get to know you. If you're traveling, we're thankful that you've stopped here uh, to be with us, and we wish you Godspeed on your journey. Uh, But if there is anything we can do this morning to help you, any need that you have that we can be of assistance with, please let us know about that. Thank you for being here this morning. I wanted to remind you before I get started with my part as I'm my sermon part this morning, about next week, next Sunday, we start our VBS. Next Sunday morning, around this time, there will probably be some other things here in the auditorium uh, that you might realize and know that it is going to be VBS that week. They will not be a part of my sermon, although you'll see them with me up here. So uh, that is going to be next week, so be thinking about that. That is Sunday night, June 3rd, and then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. Sunday night we'll be here at 5 o'clock, and then what's different, I know we're not doing Sunday night services right now, so 5 o'clock on next Sunday night, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, we'll have our VBS here at the building. There are classes during our VBS for all ages, starting at about 18 months all the way up to as old as you can get. We're going to have adult classes here in the auditorium, and uh, so we encourage everybody to come. We're studying the life of Abraham this year, and so I just want to make sure that's firmly imprinted in your mind and on your calendar uh, to be ready to be here for the first part of next week uh, for our VBS. I also wanted to say, before I forget this, uh, Brother Sonny was talking on the table, and he mentioned that uh, we've been studying about the, the collection in our daily devotionals, and it just reminded me as he said that That I haven't said anything about our daily devotionals in a little while, and we're still sending those out. If you're getting the daily devotionals, I hope that you're reading them and that they're helping you. Every day in the weekday, we're going through uh, different parts of the scripture. Right now, we're in 2 Corinthians, as our brother alluded to. And I just want to encourage you. I know that some of us may not be as diligent about that right now as we were when we started. And I want to encourage you to not give up that habit because it's a good habit. We talked last week about inputs, and that is a godly input, a way that you can change your thinking, uh, even with just a few minutes of, uh, of reading through those emails. If you do not get those emails and you'd like to sign up, please let me know, or let one of us know, and we'll, we'll put you on the list, and those emails will be delivered every morning. You may have to change whatever email notification setting you have on your phone, because those go out at 3 a.m., I am not awake at 3 a.m. most of the time. I, I don't know if some of you think that I get up at 3 a.m. just to send those out, but I do not. Uh, but you might want to be ready for that uh, if you do sign up for those. But uh, if you're interested in that, please let me know. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. On the, third day, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Last week we talked about the question of who I am... ...and the issue of identity. That our life does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. That there is more to life than food and clothing... ...in the words of Jesus. And so we pursued that idea. Well, if there is more to life than that, just what is my life? Just who am I? And in particular, we concluded that for Christians... The sense of the core of who we are goes back to God and the relationship that we have with God, particularly that we are children of God. And we talked about some false sources of identity last week, things that we tend to hang ourselves on that are really problematic, like thinking that I am my stuff or that I am what I look like or that I am my problems. The truth is, though, it's not just individuals that have an identity, but groups have an identity. Just like when Israel here comes out of the land of Egypt and they come to the mountain and God says to them, let me tell you who you are. If you will obey my covenant, you will be my treasured possession above all peoples. You will be a kingdom of priests to me, a holy nation. And so we stand on the good side of a great deliverance from God, just like Israel did. And and like Israel, we ask that question, just who are we? And so I want us to think together about not just who I am as an individual, but who we are as a group. Who are we as the Fairview Church? And what does God want us to think about who we are? And just like last week, we're going to begin by addressing some false sources of identity, some ways we can try to define ourselves and think about ourselves, that while they might not be wrong on some level, they are not the core of who we are. One of those is we are what we are against. This comes from the motivation that because we live in a consumer culture, we have to have an appeal to people. Who are we? Well, let me tell you who we are. What's our angle? What can we offer people? And so we begin to say, well, here is what we offer. We are against a whole lot of things. That's our thing. So we could say, you know what? We are non-denominational. We're non-instrumental. We're non-institutional. We're non, non, non. And we can talk about all the things that we don't do. And when people challenge us about some of those things, we feel grave concern because we feel they are attacking and addressing the real core of who we are. We have identified ourselves by a certain set of positions and things that we don't do. But like we said last week, if that's our identity, then we end up knowing a lot about who we are not, but knowing nothing about who we are. And so we're left sort of empty. A second false source is that we're a product of the restoration movement. So in this mindset, when we think of ourselves, we think of Campbell and Stone and J.D. Tan. And we focus on our placement in a world full of denominations. The denominations are over here and we're over here. We are carrying the torch of the restoration movement. So, if this is my identity, I'm going to be very concerned about digression. Moving away from what the restoration leaders established in the late or the early 1800s. If this is my identity, one of the characteristics is I'm not going to know what to say about what happened to Christianity between 100 and 1800. Were there Christians then? I don't know. Because the restoration movement, that's, that's what I'm a part of. That's my identity. And so it's almost impossible when I have this identity to see this local church as just a local church. Instead, I see it in the broad spectrum of what it is compared to every other church as part of a major religious movement. Sometimes the identity we have is that we're better than other people. When we look at a world, particularly a religious world, that has, in our view, little zeal... And precious little knowledge and that makes us feel pretty good about ourselves so we poke fun at the denomination can you believe what they put on their marquee they put that isn't that ridiculous can you believe that there was a category on jeopardy of bible books and they didn't get any of them right oh what a world we're living in but boy i'm sure not like that we sure are different aren't we like that pharisee who says thank you god that i'm not like other men we say thank you god that we're not like other churches I am better than other people. And as long as I can find someone to look down on, I feel like I have an identity. So we look for others to look down on. And we say, you know, if we're not right, then who is? Another false source of identity is that we are our numbers. Sometimes we stress superficialities in our group. And we say that really what makes us important is how many people we have coming through the door. What does our attendance run? What does our contribution run? Those numbers become the barometer by which we measure spiritual health, effectiveness in the community. Everything about our mission is defined by numbers. How well known are we? Who preaches for us? Is he a big shot? Just how much of a difference are we making in the world? You see, we have to be able to measure... And if those numbers go down, boy, we're gravely concerned. If the attendance starts to go down, if the contribution starts to go down, there is a problem and we move. But, but if there are no problems with the numbers, then we're fine where we are. That's our identity. Another identity is that we have all the right answers. The, the reason we have a value as a group is because we are right. And I don't mean right with God by that. I mean we get all the answers right. All the questions, the doctrinal tests... The morality tests, we can fill them out and make a hundred on the test. We know stuff. We know the truth. We know the truth about doctrines and about questions and about morality. Somehow, where other people get all the answers wrong, we get them all right. Not sure exactly how we think that works, but that's what we're thinking. We get them right where everybody else gets them wrong. Now, when we have this identity, we don't want to rehear about really tough questions in the Bible that we don't really have an answer to. We don't want to hear that. Because that threatens who we are. If I have to say, I don't know, then that is a scandal. That is a problem because I am saying my identity is at stake. Now, before we go any farther, I need to say some things about this. There is nothing wrong with being against things. There is nothing wrong with being a part or product of the restoration movement. There is nothing wrong with sometimes having people that are not as good in some measure as we are. There is nothing wrong with noticing numbers. And there is nothing wrong with trying to be right and having right answers. The problem is that these things can't be our identity. That's not who we are. Our identity has to come from somewhere else. And if we don't know how to think of ourselves, if we don't think of ourselves rightly, we are going to fight the wrong battles and we're going to come out on the wrong side of them. We're going to make mistakes and alienate people. And like those in Ephesus, we'll have left our first love and displease our Lord. But most of all, when these are our thoughts, we lose a sense of where our mission is and where our hearts should lie. And that's what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes this morning. Where is our identity truly? Who are we? And I want to begin with this. We are disciples of Jesus. I want you to go with me to John chapter 15. John 15. A disciple is a learner or a follower, someone who attaches themselves to a teacher. ...in order to become like the teacher. And we have chosen to be disciples of Jesus. John chapter 15. In this context, it is directed to the apostles... ...but it describes a relationship... ...that is typical of Jesus and his disciples. John 15 and verse 1, he says... "...I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away... ...and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes... ...that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you... As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple." So he stresses the kind of relationship that he intends disciples to have with him. And he uses this picture of a vine and branches. That there has to be a connection between him and his people at all times. And he says this in some harsh ways. Specifically, he says in verse 5, Whoever abides in me and I am, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. That there is no... ...spiritual work we can undertake... ...no success we can have... ...no long-lasting vibrancy in our lives... ...if we are disconnected from Him. Without me, you can do nothing. The stress here is not on what anyone else is doing. It's on my connection to Jesus. Am I a disciple of Jesus? So, you will be my disciples, Jesus says. And when we do that, He says we bear fruit... ...which means there are actions... ...that come out of that connection. Because I am connected to Jesus... ...because we are one... ...because I have chosen to follow him... ...I begin to live differently. There are choices I make that change me. And so I become a disciple... ...and God is glorified. But apart from him... ...I can do nothing. So that means... ...I'm not really better than other people. That if there is any way in which I measure against others, it is only that I'm connected to Christ, and perhaps they're not. So it's not really about me at all. And I don't need to compare myself or worry or concern myself about what anyone else is doing. I may not have all the answers, but that's not what matters to Jesus. What matters to Jesus is that I am connected to Him. And as we begin to think about that, I've said, this is the question, who are we? We are disciples of Jesus. I believe it's important for us to view the group ...the local church as a group of disciples... ...disciples who are doing their discipleship together. Let's go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. I'll show you where I get that idea. Acts chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. Acts 6 and verse 1, it says, Now in these days... "...when the disciples were increasing in number... ...a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews... ...because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution... ...and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples." Down in verse 7... "...and the word of God continued to increase... ...and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem... ...and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." It is good for us in the, the words that Luke uses here to see... ...that we can think of the local church as a group of disciples... That we are disciples gathered together. Not that the group in itself has any power beyond the power of each individual disciple connected to Jesus. That's who we are. We are just disciples of Jesus. Now, as we gather together, as we have this morning we bear fruit together, we encourage one another, we push one another toward the image of Christ, and there is always this upward swing that we are growing and growing and growing as we see more and more of the majesty of Jesus, as we are connected more and more deeply, as we bring others into discipleship relationships. There is always the push together toward Jesus. That's an important part of who we are and what we do. But if Christ is in us, why does it matter how many of us there are? Numbers don't matter. The numbers aren't what's important about disciples of Jesus. And I believe even in Acts, the numbers are only there to occasionally tell us some great things that God is doing. But certainly not to say, oh, it was a bigger deal because there were more or less of them. Who are we? We are disciples of Jesus. Second, we are Christians. Let's go to Acts 11. Acts 11. This word is used to describe in Acts 11, the church in Antioch, the word Christian. Acts 11 and verse 26. Let's start in verse 25. Acts 11 and verse 25 says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christians, because that word distinguished them from Jews and distinguished them from Gentiles. Some of them were Jews, some were Gentiles, and they needed a name, something to call them, because... There was a mix of both, and so this characteristic belief that the Messiah or the Christ had come is used to define them. But it also is important because this little suffix, I-A-N, in the word Christian, is a suffix that indicates a party affiliation in the ancient world. So you have the Caesarean party and the Herodian party. There are parties that are designated by that I-A-N prefix. That, that is a way of saying That's where my loyalty lies. That's my guy. That's my party. I'm on his team. We are a group of people who say about Christ, that's my guy. I'm on his team. He's the one I'm loyal to. It is a name that points to Christ as the primary identification. That's the point. It speaks to a relationship. And I want to stress to you that Christian is a name that needs no qualification. I am not a Christian blank. I am not a blank Christian. I'm not a Church of Christ Christian. By the way, I'm also not a Church of Christ preacher. If you want to use that term, I'll probably say something about it to you. I'm a Christian, just a Christian. Nothing more and nothing less. Not a restoration Christian, not a non institutional Christian. Just a Christian, just like these people were. It's a name that doesn't need any addition. And that's who we are. We are people who have given ourselves to Christ. Third, we are the family of God. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. We talked a little bit about this last week when we we stressed the idea that our identity is in the fact that we are children of God. Here in Ephesians 2... It is not just that we are children, but that we are—we have brothers and sisters as well. We are part of the family of God. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are now members of the term he uses is the household of God in verse 19. We're part of God's family. We're not just provisional guests. We're a part of the family. You remember when Jesus says this? Mark 3, verse 34, looking about, him, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You remember Jesus' family was coming to see him, probably to take him away somewhere because they thought he was going crazy. And Jesus said, That's not my family. This is my family. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The Hebrew writer says that Jesus is our brother, that we all are of one, meaning of the father. So the idea here is that we have a new family. And that's the reason that you and I are brothers and sisters. We have a, a mutual father. And so now suddenly we know each other. Now suddenly we are related. And we are in the family. We take an enormous sense of identity from our family, from our parents, from our siblings. Usually, that's because this are, these are the people who are closest to us genetically, and there is a bond that, that really you can't explain. It is just who you are. That's what we would say. This is who I am, this is the way I was raised, but it's not just that, it's something deeper. And all of that imagery of what the family means in terms of identity, Paul says, that's you as a group. You are the people of God. Now, what that means is there is no one who does not deserve to be here. None of us deserve to be here, but all of us are accepted and welcome into the family of God. And there is no exclusion from those that God has adopted as sons and daughters. This identity, then, supersedes everything about us. It is what we are. We are brothers and sisters gathered to honor our Father. That's who we are. And that's going to have a lot of implications in terms of how we treat one another. And it's going to have a lot of implications. Sometimes we talk about joining the family at Fairview. It's going to have implications about how we accept people in who have been in the world and now are children of God it's going to have implications about how we resolve conflict. Because while we all know that families can have a lot of conflict, we also know that conflict doesn't mean that we're no longer family. So when we have conflict, there is a burden that says we are God's family. We've got to get this worked out because we're still going to be brothers and sisters. We still have God as Father. Who are we? We are the work of God. We are the work of God. I think there's something in this text that we just read that shows us this. In Ephesians 2 and verse 20, he says, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is doing something, and we are the something. You remember how Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church? Guess what? We are that church. Jesus built it. Now, I don't mean that we are the only church. I mean, this local church is the fruition of Jesus' promise. God has been at work. And what that means is, and really what all of these are pointing at, is that God has been at work in your life and in mine. And that God has been at work through His word through circumstances, through people to bring you to him and to bring me to him and to bring us together and to work with us so that we now help each other and we're part of what God is doing in each other's lives. We are God's work and he is building us together into what he wants us to be. What is going on in this room right now, the worship that we are engaged in, represents so many years of God's work in each one of our lives. All so that we could come to a point where we could be disciples and Christians and children of God. And we need a sense that that is who we are. The people God is working on. The people, as he says here, who are being joined together and built together into a dwelling place for God in the spirit. Go with me over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. The song that Terran led this morning is a great... I, I, we didn't really talk about that song. It was a great lead-in to what we're talking about because it uses this passage in 1 Peter to illustrate this is who we are and what God is doing with us. First Peter 2 and verse 4. 1 Peter 2 and verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house... To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's who we are. You wanna know who we are? Peter just told us. We are being built together, we are a spiritual house. We are all stones that God has thrown together and is making something out of. That's us. And we need a sense of that identity. Do you know what that means? That means it matters very little what anyone else is doing or believing or teaching. Whether we talk about what's going on in some other part of the country or what's going on in some other part of our town. God is at work. And that's what matters to us. Now, those are things that we may like to be aware of. Those are things that may impact our lives on some level. But they are not the core of who we are. This is who we are. We are God's people in whom God is working. You know what that means? That means it doesn't matter where we fit in the annals of religious history. What are they going to say someday about the Fairview Church? It doesn't matter. What awesome thing are we going to accomplish in our community? It doesn't matter. God is at work. That's who we are. That's the point. You know what that means? It means it doesn't matter. If we have big, impressive numbers and a nice, awesome building, it just means that we are the people God is at work in. By the way, I really do believe this. I really do believe God is at work among us. I really do believe it because I see it. I see it when I see my brothers and sisters growing, growing in passion, focusing on the Word, making good choices in their lives. I see it when I see sin confessed and forsaken. I see God at work when godly people respond in godly ways. God is at work. And that needs to be celebrated because that is who we are. And finally, we are precious to God. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. It says... But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These phrases echo back to where we began in Exodus 19. That's what God told Israel. Peter says that's true of you as Christians, his people. We are precious Because God has chosen us. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race. God has chosen us not based on our goodness, not because we got all the answers right. He has chosen us out of His own love and His own grace. God did that. We are precious because we are allowed to be priests for the king. He says in verse 9, a royal priesthood. We are precious because we have been made holy, set apart for God. We didn't do that. God did that for us. We are blessed, and God is saying, this is how much I love you and how much I want to work in you. I will do this for you. We are precious because we are a people who is special to him, a people for his own possession. God has invested so much in us, and by us I mean those of us who are members of this congregation. Think about what God has done for you. God has controlled all of human history. To bring about the entrance of his son into the world, God has preserved his word through the ages, through the centuries, including the word of the the witness of the apostles who saw Jesus and walked with him. And he has preserved it through all the centuries and all the things that have passed since Jesus walked the earth and brought it to today. He's written the Bible, he's given us his son. And then there's what God has done just since we've been alive to work in our lives, to work in people around us, to call to us, to be patient when we were stubborn and resistant and stiff-necked. And the fact that we meet here and we proclaim His excellencies is the fulfillment of His great plan. That's the point. Because He says in verse 10, you are not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter gives us identity here. He tells us to rejoice in who we are because of what it means. Don't think of yourselves as a people who can't do certain things. Think of yourselves as a people blessed supremely by God. Don't think of yourself as better than other people. Think of yourself as chosen by God. And of course, the unifying factor that connects all of these... ...is the idea that we belong to God. Just like last week, the unifying identity for all individuals is God. Here, as a group, we are Jesus' disciples. We are Christians. We belong to Christ. We're the family of God. We're the work of God. We're precious to God. But especially, I want to emphasize to you this morning... ...that what that means... ...is that our identity springs from our connection to Jesus and not from our contrast to other groups or other people. It's not about what they're doing or not doing. It's about what God has done in us. That's the point. That's who we are. Now, there are times where we need to oppose things. And there are times where we need to be distinct. I understand that. And I am not saying that that's not true but we cannot begin to think that other people and their teachings and ideas somehow define my relationship with God. That's not so. That's not who we are. We need to consciously quit worrying about what everyone else is doing and focus on what God calls us to do. Let me tell you where this comes from for me comes from a couple of sources. I remember having a conversation Sarah and I did with a young lady several years ago. And she was anxious. Because what she heard when she heard the gospel preached was that she had to condemn every other group that called themselves Christians in the world. To be the only Christian or else she couldn't serve God. And I remember telling her, Sarah and I, we we sat and talked with her, and we said, you don't have to worry about what anybody else is doing. Just do what God calls you to do. It's just simple. And I have conversations with some regularity, with people who want to know about Fairview. And it almost feels like you guys that know about college football and college football recruiting will know what I'm talking about. It almost feels like I'm recruiting them to our church. They want to know, well, what... What do you got? What are you going to give me? What, do you, what kind of programs do you guys have? What kind of stuff do I get? And so I feel pressure in those situations. I'll be very honest. I, I, I feel like I want to put the best face on Fairview. I know how to. But at the end of the day, I really feel like what, what I'm being asked to do is to say, why are you better than every other church? And that's a question I can't answer. I don't know that we're better. Why does that matter? And so it seems to me that in those discussions, and we have visitors and we love having visitors. We're thankful that you're here. This is a family. This is a great place to worship God. These are great people who have blessed my life. But I can't tell you that this is the best church that there is. I don't even know what best would mean. I simply want to say that if we're just looking to be distinguished from other people, then we're missing what God is doing. That's not who we are. You see, when we get this straight, then the other identities fall into place. What we are against is only part of the whole idea of being a disciple. Because being a disciple, we're going to be against what Jesus is against and for what Jesus is for. And the Restoration Movement then becomes a neat study about some really courageous people who had some really determined ideas. I'm going to go back to the Bible and follow just the Bible. And I appreciate that. But my roots as a Christian go back a lot farther and a lot higher than a bunch of pioneer preachers. I'm thankful for them, but they are not the ones who set the tone for my faith. I go back to Jesus. Condescension then goes out the window because we know we are simply the beneficiaries of God's goodness. Our numbers don't matter at all, except that occasionally, numbers are going to be a testimony to the great things God is doing. And the right answers come only from Christ. You know, we may find times as we get this all worked out straight, we may find that there are times where we have been wrong. Doesn't mean Jesus is wrong. It means that we need to change and follow more closely to what Jesus has called us to do and be. That's who we are. Would you pray with me about it? Our God and Father, we thank you so much that you have blessed us so richly. We're thankful as a congregation of your people that you have brought us together. We're thankful that you've given us wise leaders who want to follow your word and lead us in good directions. We're thankful, Father, for the local church that you've laid out in your word and the plan for it, that we can be together and encourage one another, hold one another accountable, help one another when we fall into sin, and most of all, that we can sharpen one another so that we become closer to you through our interactions together. Father, I pray for us as we try to remember who we are as we try to remember and think rightly about what a local church should be. Help us to reach out to you and take our heart and our identity from you and not just to distinguish ourselves from other people. I pray, Father, your blessings on our work together. I pray that it will be pleasing to you that we'll do it not to impress others, but to impress you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen might be someone here who needs to obey the gospel this morning, who is ready to become a Christian, to become the work of God, who is ready for the first time to leave behind a life of sin and to accept the invitation to be a disciple. Jesus lays that out to us. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. There is rest, there is hope, and there is a new kind of life, a yoke you put on. As you begin to follow Jesus. And if you're ready to begin that life. To have the rest that you're seeking. The forgiveness and lay down those burdens. If you need to be baptized into Christ. You need to turn away from your sins. If there's any need that you have this morning. Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.